What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the Two Man Power Trip. Oh my God! This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the Prince of Pro Wrestling, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. This is Jimmy Van the Boogie Woogie Man. Tell my people, my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now, they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are... Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling! Escuching me. Everybody listen. <laughs> to me. ¿Qué pasa? Los Colombos. <laughs> My name is Armando Alejandro Estra. And allow me to introduce to you the man who took down the 16-time heavyweight champion. The man who destroyed the nature boy Ric Flair at Backlash. Pero tonight we go from Ric Flair to Jew. Amigo, hey, question, you're not the nature boy, are you? <laughs> I don't see no robe. Hey, are you nervous? You should be. Are you hey, hey, scared? <laughs> you better be, because tonight you're going one-on-one -on -one versus This is the two-man power trip of wrestling, and you are listening to episode number 252 of the two-man power trip of wrestling podcast. And if you didn't know it by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only, 
John Paz and John. Today on the show, we are joined by a man whose name is just as identifiable as his cigar and his trademark hat as, and everybody say it with me, Armando Alejandro Estrada joins the two-man power trip of wrestling to cover everything that went on in his time in the WWE where he spent a majority of that time alongside a guy called the Samoan Bulldozer Umaga. And of course, you have to say it like Armando would say Umaga because this is a duo that if you remember thinking back to about 2005, 2006, when they came on the WWE television, you knew something bad was going to happen because Umaga basically would go on to be probably the most dominant Samoan performer to ever step through uh, the WWE curtain. And I'm obviously going to say that up to this point because Samoa Joe, in his short tenure on the main roster, has done a pretty good job of uh, maybe filling that role since Umaga had since, uh, you know, stepped into that in 2005. But Umaga and Armando Alejandro Estrada, when they came out, all hell broke loose. And it all started off with a simple promo by this guy that we soon found out had the gift of gab to a point that it started to turn management heads in possibly a not good direction because he was so damn over. But as we start to kind of look at what happened with Umaga and with what happened with Armando Estrada, these are two guys that got along so well and had such a good chemistry that they were able to really take over a roster that at that time was kind of struggling for the big breakout heel for maybe like the new face of what the heel was supposed to be because not that it was getting stale, not that there was really no new faces, but there was nobody that was different. There was nobody that really stood out. And the two of them together worked perfectly because Umaga being the Samoan bulldozer and Armando being a manager, which at that point was nearly extinct, it just was the perfect storm at the perfect time. And I tell a story that I don't always like to get into uh, on the show because I don't want to put myself over, but when I worked for the WWE in 2006, I was there the night that they debuted. I was actually, excuse me, it was the following morning uh, where they were reviewing the tape of Monday Night Raw, and these two debuted, and it literally was the kind of deal where um, it turned everybody's heads even at the production studio. And you knew there was going to be something special there. And I actually got the chance to tell that to Armando. And it's something that I've carried myself since 2006 because it made such an impression on me. But getting the chance to say that to Armando was really cool. And what you're going to find out about Armando in this interview is that he's a great storyteller. He's a great communicator. And he really is just so passionate about what he did in the WWE. But, John, as I get to welcome you in here, there's so many things that we get to cover, whether it's WrestleMania 23, which is obviously the big battle of the billionaires, or the time that Umaga and Armando Estrada debuted, like I mentioned, or if there's other things like when they were separated or when they took the microphone away. There's so much we got to cover, but Armando was such a great storyteller. It made the whole entire episode that much more enjoyable. But as I welcome you in here, tell us what else we have to look forward to in the interview and maybe some of the highlights that we have coming from the man known at one point as El Presidente, Armando Estrada. Yes, Chad, back here again, and it's another fantastic episode of the two-man power trip this episode i gotta be honest this was an unbelievable interview 
You know Armando Alejandro Estrada is a great talker, great on the mic, great promo guy, but he's a damn good interview, and this interview I would describe as a barn burner. So much fun with this one. I mean, whew, what a great storyteller, what a great talker, what a great interviewer. Just loved all the topics we were able to discuss. I love kind of going really in-depth with Armando and, you know, really picking his brain on a couple really key moments in WWE history, which are obviously career highlights for him. So, I mean, where do I start really and, and kind of maybe piggybacking off of you a little bit, just going into some of his career moments? Obviously, his time with Umaga sticks out the most, and we go in-depth into Umaga the character, how it was created, why it was created, any rumors circulating about that character, everything that had to do with Armando Estrada being associated with that character and being his mouthpiece, and of course, getting over, perhaps getting a little too over, getting cheered, and then of course, you know, not getting booed enough, and Vince kind of being pissed at them, and Vince basically telling him to uh, stop talking, that they were getting over too much, and he didn't like that, and you know, they're building him up for John Cena. He's supposed to be this monster, and he's getting over too much, and he's getting too popular. So Vince wanted him to put an end to that. Vince wanted him to stop talking and basically squashed it right then and there. And he has a great line about, hey, if you're supposed to be in the mid-card, they keep you in the mid-card. You're supposed to stay in the mid-card. And I guess that's kind of what happened with Umaga because, boy, was he one of the greatest Samoan wrestlers of all time and one of the greatest wrestlers, period, of that time period for them. He was awesome. He was amazing. The character was on point. He's an awesome worker. Uh, Strata as the mouthpiece was awesome. It was a perfect combination. Absolutely loved it. And they kind of killed it. I mean, obviously, he had some big wins, and he beat HB, HBK, old HB Shizzle. He beat Triple H. He beat, beat a bunch of other big-time names. But obviously, you know, the buck stopped. He lost to John Cena, and then it was kind of... Um, not not all downhill from there because obviously he had the big WrestleMania 23 moment, but it was it was a bit down from there. You know, never was kind of in the world title picture again. Feuded with Lashley, but I feel like in which you know Armando kind of says in the interview as well that maybe they got a little too over and uh, WWE didn't like that. But with Armando, you get the great story all about that. You get the whole Umaga scene a feud. You get the Royal Rumble match. We get to talk about all that good stuff. And of course, like I just alluded to, WrestleMania 23, and we get this unbelievable Donald Trump story. And you know what makes the story obviously even better is it's like, wow, the President of the United States now, and what he was doing then, and basically busted open and beat up Estrada backstage the hard way. And we get into that whole story of how that happened, why that happened, and everything like that. So, you know, sit back, relax, enjoy this one, because you're going to hear a lot about Vince... You're going to hear some OVW, some ECW, some WWE, and obviously we're going to talk a little Braden Walker as well. So sit back, relax, enjoy this one, because this is a barn burner, folks. An awesome, awesome interview with Armando Alejandro Estrada. There's definitely some amazing stories from Armando, but it also, this episode really does shed a lot of light into the career of Umaga, and obviously somebody like Armando Estrada, who did travel with Umaga and really was such a big part of his success in the WWE as a single star. 
and you kind of get to fill in some more of the holes that we uh, learned about Umaga from other guests. Obviously, we spoke with his partner, Rosie, uh, a little over a year and a half ago, and we spoke with Rikishi last summer. So you kind of got to see some other sides of Umaga, but this time we got to go right in the trenches, get in there with Amando Estrada, find out about what their chemistry was like, and really find out about what kind of guy Umaga was and how much they really got along. And I kind of find it to be very poignant at the end where I kind of pay, I, I put it to Armando and say, listen, what do you think you guys would have done had you been paired up again? Because all the good groups, all the good factions, all the good manager, uh, perfor- performer combo, they always end up getting back together. And what would o- Umaga and Armando have done being paired together again? And he almost alludes to them as being an Undertaker and Paul Bearer-like relationship because they were so close and because they had such a good chemistry. And unfortunately, we will never be able to see that because of the late, great Umaga passing away a few years back. And it's just, it's very unfortunate. He was a definite talent for professional wrestling. And we've learned a lot about him from other guests. But now we really fill in a lot of those Umaga holes with Armando Estrada. But we really hope you enjoy the rest of the interview as well. It was so awesome. It was such a great chat. This was really, like John keeps calling it, it's a barn burner, but it really is just an interesting interesting interview and we really hope you do enjoy and please if you're going to WrestleCon there's going to be hundreds of performers there there's going to be hundreds of wrestling superstars but go out of your way to ivpvideos.com and get to their booth and meet Armando Alejandro Estrada tell him that you heard him on the two-man power trip of wrestling and get yourself a picture get yourself an autograph and definitely support Armando Estrada in everything that he has coming forward and he is definitely a great guy and we appreciate the time that he gave the two-man power trip of wrestling because it was a hectic night if you can hear it in the background you know what i'm talking about but armando is the man and we appreciate his time and john as the music starts to creep in hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and get it on over to haha mr armando alejandro estrada and now for some tmpt business like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please visit our website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. Subscribe to us on YouTube. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. While you're on iTunes, check out the feed for some legendary episodes featuring the living legend himself, Bruno San Martino, the late great American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. Ray Mysterio Jr., Jerry McDivitt, Brutus the Barber Beefcake, Mr. Wonderful Paul Ondorf, AJ Styles, and so many others. Also, while you're surfing the web, check out WrestlingInc.com. Yes, that is WrestlingInc.com. They are the number one wrestling news source out there, so please check them out. Also, while on the internet, go to ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, ProWrestlingTees.com is your superstore. If you are a super fan, and if you please check out our page while you're there, you can check out Tito Santana, Paul Orndorff, Coco Beware, Magnum TA, Buff Bagwell, and so, so many others. Follow along with the two-man power trip of wrestling in 2017 as we hit the road and we come to a town near you. April 22nd, we hit Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the Icon Collector's Fest. Then, May 19th and May 20th, we hit the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling Expo in Richmond, Virginia. Then, 
follow us to New Jersey as we hit the Legends of the Ring in Monroe. So please follow along with the two-man power trip of wrestling in 2017, because you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, the man formerly known as Mr. A.E., he is El Presidente. He was also known as Big Lalo. He is the former manager of the Samoan Bulldozer Umaga. He is Armando Alejandro Estrada. Please enjoy. Armando Alejandro Estrada, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Amigos, haha, welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being on the two-man power trip, and I will entertain as only I can do. Haha. <laughs> you know, it's funny. John and I were uh, we were talking right before we uh, we got on the line with you here, and the one thing that we love about that, I mean, obviously, it's now become an iconic introduction. It's so identifiable with what you've done, but I got to give you credit for getting haha as an actual thing that people can hashtag and buy on a T-shirt now. So I'm going to give that to you. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, it, you know, the f- four letters, right? H A H A. I hashtagged that. I started hashtagging that probably when Twitter was in its infancy. So going on a decade now. So hashtag haha buy the shirt. <laughs> Yeah, it's natural. Hashtag haha, I love that. But, uh, yeah, 10 years, and, you know, it's obviously going to be a lot of what we talk about tonight. But, uh, you know, it's kind of crazy to look back, uh, you know, that we look back 10 years just on the Umaga versus John Cena match from the Royal Rumble, which arguably up until this past Royal Rumble was probably John Cena's most memorable and violent contest that he was ever in. But, you know, kind of looking back at that, can you believe that 10 years has passed? you know, since the birth of Armando Estrada and Umaga graced the WWE screen. Yeah, it's actually been a little longer than that now that I think about it. I guess, I guess we're, going on, we're going on 11 years, so a little over a decade. And to your point, uh, last month would have been the 10-year anniversary of the, uh, the classic last man standing match that, you know, the late Umaga, Eddie Fatu, had with John Cena. We were in San Antonio, coincidentally, the uh, same city that hosted the Royal Rumble just a few weeks ago. We were not in the Alamo Dome, but uh, rather I think where the Spurs play, the NBA San Antonio Spurs. And, I mean, what a match. I mean, that was just an instant classic. And when people ask me as far as what was my favorite match to be at ringside for, 
although there were a lot more people at the Battle of the Billionaires at WrestleMania 23 with Donald Trump and Vince McMahon, that match, John Cena, Umaga, Last Man Standing, Royal Rumble 2007, hands down my favorite match to be a part of. It's, uh, it's a match that John Cena really needed at that point when you think about where he was because, you know, he had kind of really, you know, finished the transition from, you know, the rapping champion, you know, kind of doing the, uh, the rhyme still, the spinner belt being uh, what it was, you know, and he really needed that feud with Umaga to kind of take that step into becoming the real man at the time, and he really, he, just that match, and you think about the violence and the blood and the, the aggression out of John Cena, do you think that that was a match that really needed to catapult him into what really has become, uh, I, I would say, one of the more important parts of his WWE tenure was that championship feud with Umaga? Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head. It wasn't just the actual match, you know, that he had at the Royal Rumble, uh, John Cena, Umaga. I think the actual feud itself, and if you if you go back to before John worked that program with us, he was getting booed. He had started to get booed right around a year prior. So I'd say if we go back to 2005, when he started his program with Kurt Angle, and that was when Kurt Angle could do no wrong. I mean, they had Kurt Angle on TV talking about some real, you know, uh, he was really pushing the envelope trying to get the audience to boo him. I remember they gave him Sean Devari. He made some disparaging remarks on air about not supporting the troops. I mean, you talk about a guy that was just trying to get booed and the audience absolutely refused to boo Kurt Angle in his program with John Cena. Then John moved into a program with Edge. Same thing. There was a lot of people that were starting to really get behind Edge. And then John entered and worked with Triple H at WrestleMania 22 in Chicago, which was the night before Umaga and I debuted on the main roster. So there, John had been in a series of feuds in which as the top babyface, he was starting to get a number of uh, a vocal portion was starting to, uh, to boo him. So when we had started to work with him in November of 2006, it was very refreshing to see that the audience started to boo the bad guys and cheer the baby face. And that's what, that was what we wanted, and that's what we delivered. And I think a lot of people thought that Umaga was going to be walking away as the WWE champion at that point because he had gone on such an absolute tear since debuting. And we're going to get to the debut in a minute. But what, do you, what did it mean for Umaga at that point? And obviously, you know, we've talked to you know, his former partner, Rosie. We've talked to Rikishi. So we've gotten some looks at Umaga, and we've kind of learned a little bit more. But I don't think too many people are going to know him you know, as well as you did, but what did, he, what did it mean to him to get that title program at that point after just running roughshod through the roster for nearly a year? Well, I mean, it was a huge deal, and it was a huge feather in our caps to receive the, the push that we got from the get-go. I remember, I think it was my first or second week, I think it was Michael Hayes who said, I think the question came up of, when is he going to lose or when do you anticipate him losing? And Michael Hayes said, uh, he ain't going to lose, right? And that was, that was probably nine months before the, the, first, uh, the first televised match 
with Cena, which was, I think, the New Year's, New Year's Revolution 2007. We were in Kansas City, Missouri, in the Sprint Center, and uh, that was Umaga's first televised defeat, first defeat that was acknowledged by the company. So, you know, the WWE is a superhero-building company. They, they, build, they build good guys. They build the Hogans. They build the Austins. They build the Rocks, and, 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 the, and the John Cena's are no different. So we knew that, you know, what goes up must come down. But, I mean, we had a run where Umaga was only defeated on TV at least he was pinned probably twice in a year. And both of those losses were to Cena, right? Not, a, not exactly a, a, a bad thing. And then there was the loss at WrestleMania to, uh, to Bobby Lashley. So, I mean, it was, it was a huge uh, nod to his talent. I was fortunate to be a part of it. I like to think that I helped get him to where he needed to be. And, uh, you know, the rest was history. Yeah, absolute history, because you were the first person that we saw to introduce Umaga, and I can just kind of divert a little bit, and I actually uh, I did a little bit of uh, production work for the WWE in 2006, and I was in the production studio the night after, or the, excuse me, the morning after you guys debuted, the, uh, the Tuesday after, and you could feel in that studio that they knew they had somebody special in Umaga and having the mouthpiece with you, but did you get that from the guys on the road? Did they feel that having a Samoan character like Umaga and having the mouthpiece like you now, managers basically at that point were gone. They were obsolete, and you were really one of the first people to bring that kind of character back to television and do it very well. But inside the studio, they were flipping out with that debut. But what was the vibe when you finally made it to television, when you got out there the day after WrestleMania, you can't get a bigger stage than what you did that night on Monday Night Raw. I mean, it was extremely, uh, it was extremely flattering to see. You know, there's an old saying in the wrestling business: is if the boys pop, if you can, if you can pop the locker room, then the audience will come with it as well. So typically, what what the what the boys like, what what the men and women that that are professional wrestlers or sports entertainers, what they do for a living, if they genuinely enjoy your performance then it's safe to say the audience is going to get with it as well. So I just, I just like to go out there and do the best job I could. So, you know, and it took a while. Um, for me, it was com- I was comfortable playing, you know, the Cuban character. I'm not Cuban. I don't actually speak Spanish, right? I, I just can speak enough broken Spanish to have a conversation. And uh, to be able to go out there and put on the accent and, and do all that, uh, for me, it was a lot of fun and was very easy. It didn't feel like I was, you know, cutting the promo or I was acting. It kind of came natural to me. And then the big man, you know, rest his soul, he was a, probably one of the most talented, you know, super heavyweights that would, would, will ever come into the industry. And unfortunately, the WWE audience, you know, only got to see a fraction of what he could do I mean, if you go on YouTube, some of the work that he did in, in Japan, you could see the, the full extent of uh, the body of work that was uh, Eddie Fatu, a.k.a. Jamal, a.k.a. Rose, uh, sorry, Umaga. That didn't sound right. A.k.a. Umaga. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he definitely, uh, and he had a lot to prove, too, because this was a reset 
for him because it was kind of rare, and it still is, that a guy can be a completely different character and come back. And turning from Jamal into Umaga, you know, we all knew who it was if you were watching at the time, but it was such a departure. But that debut being so impactful, and I think it's even been, you know, ranked up there as one of the top debuts following a WrestleMania. But take us into your mindset because, you know, you went through OVW, obviously, uh, you know, the hand of a former guest of ours, Rip Rogers, is uh, very, very felt through the ranks of those who came through OVW. But kind of the culmination is walking through the curtain, but what was going through your head as you were ready to go through that curtain for Monday Night Raw? Well, uh, true story, a lot of people don't know this. I, I've maybe mentioned this in a few interviews, but I, I had bronchitis, and I had uh, a sinus infection that I found out later on. So I was dealing with uh, losing my voice, and I had a nine-minute segment with Ric Flair, arguably the greatest talker, in the history of the business. So it was also in my hometown, in, in the Allstate Arena, a building that I've sat in and bought a ticket to at least three dozen times. So to be able to be on the other side, knowing that I was going to walk out in this arena in front of family, in front of friends, in front of the man that I idolized and tried to emulate uh, as a performer, Ric Flair, and I couldn't, I was concerned with my voice. So I was really worried more about projecting because of the, uh, because of, you know, my sickness, my bronchitis, laryngitis, whatever you want to call it. I sounded awful. And if you go back and watch that promo, I was yelling. I was absolutely yelling into that microphone for fear that, you know, that the WWE product, you know, the mics weren't going to pick me up. So, that was my biggest concern. It wasn't all the verbiage that I had to memorize, and I had about three pages uh, of promo that I had to, you know, recite over and over in my head. I was more concerned with, God, are, are they going to hear anything that I'm saying? So, again, if you go back and listen to that promo, I am yelling at the top of my lungs. So, I mean, it, it came off well. I mean, looking back, it actually added a little bit to the character, I almost wish I could sound like that, you know, half the time my wife's trying to ask me a question. So, well, honey, I can't hear you. So, you know, <laughs> sorry, honey, I'm sick. Um, but, yeah, it was a great time, great memory. Before the debut, you know, before you go out there, obviously you, you got the look, you have the gimmick, you know, you're everything you're going to want to be. Is that kind of your interjection of, of what you want the character, or is that Vince kind of saying he wants the character to go in a certain direction? Because I know you kind of were doing a little bit of it in OVW, but where does that kind of inspiration come from for that character? Great question. So the short answer was... Sorry, that was a little one screaming in the background. Uh, <laughs> the short answer is the Armando Estrada character was created by me uh, in OVW after I was asked to uh, rebrand myself and kind of come up with a new gimmick. So that's another story for another uh, interview, gentlemen. But uh, Paul <laughs> Heyman, uh, when Paul Heyman was writing OVW at the time, I was uh, not signed. I was um, kind of paying my way. I was actually paying OVW and Rip Rogers to train me. So when I came up with the Armando character, it was actually sitting on my couch in Louisville, Kentucky, watching 
the, uh, the Scarface movie with Al Pacino, and I was always a big Scott Hall slash Razor Ramon mark. I mean, if I had to pick, probably my favorite character of all time was the Razor Ramon character. So knowing that Razor kind of lifted his character from uh, Manolo from the Scarface movie, I went and watched Tony Montana and over and oh, I remember watching that movie four or five times in a row and I had a notebook that I think I still have somewhere in storage and I just wrote down the little mannerisms and the little things that, that he would do and say. And in my head, I was like, I can say that on TV. I could throw a Spanish accent on that. I can take that and make it my own. And that's what wrestling is all about. So I started doing the character on house shows, uh, OVW house shows, and eventually uh, word got to Heyman that, hey, you got to look at this Estrada guy. And I actually was going by Armando Alejandro Estrada. So I actually picked the name, the look, the accent, the cigars, the hat, the whole deal, A to Z was my creation. And I'm very proud of that because I put a lot of work into that character. And, and you, know, you know it's a good feeling and you know it's working when the Spanish-speaking performers in the company at Monday Night Raw at, at WWE come up to you months after you've been there and they just start having a conversation with you in Spanish. And I think it was about <laughs> nine months in, Vince, somebody said to Vince, uh, you know Armando's not really Cuban. And Vince said, what? Like he, he was shocked. He couldn't believe that I actually was playing a role and that my name was not really Armando Estrada. So and I, I, and I, forgive me if I didn't answer the question, but uh, I came up with the character. Paul Heyman, when he was writing and booking OVW, gave me the green light to just shoot from the hip, and he would give me pointers. He wouldn't necessarily write out a whole bunch of stuff, which I absolutely loved working uh, underneath Paul because he trusted me, and he would give me my time cues, and he gave me my bullet points, and I just ad-libbed most of the time. And it was, it was great, and that's what eventually got me to uh, the main roster. Do you prefer the ad-libbing over the having to rehearse the lines and remember the lines and things of that nature? 1,000% I prefer the ad-libbing. And I think if you ask any of the boys that are, that are there, you know, the Chris Jerichos of the world, uh, the guys that, you know, John Cena. I remember John actually one time, my first house show, um, we were in Des Moines, Iowa. I got a very good memory, guys. That's the other thing about me. I think the only other person in the business that has a better memory than me is Jim Cornette. But I think I'm right there with him as far as remembering dates and cities and payouts. So uh, I remember being on my first loop. It might have been my first ever house show in Des Moines, Iowa, in April of 2006. And I started to write down what I wanted to say in my promo. I think Umaga was working with Val Venus that night. And John Cena saw me kind of writing, you know, putting pen to paper. And he's like, what are you doing? And I says, well, I'm writing my promo for tonight. And he said to me, he goes, you don't need that. Put it away. Go out there. Listen to the crowd and just say what comes naturally. And I said, you know what? Yeah, you're right. And, and that was the best advice I think he ever gave me because 
I would get so worked up in memorizing and, and wanting to remember what to say and how to say it. But the best promos that I ever cut, personally speaking, were never televised because when, they're te- when you're televised, you've got a, you know, a writing team. And it's not a knock against the writers because they've got to work within those, you know, within, uh, those parameters due to live TV. And a lot of people don't understand that. They need to know it. They need to, you know, your promo, they need to know exactly what you're going to say and how long it's going to take you to say it because they, you know, they've got to pay the bills. You've got sponsors. You've got advertisers. You've got to cut away, and, and there's other things going on in the show. So to have the freedom on a non-televised event, you know, the house shows, to go out and just shoot from the hip, absolutely, I, I preferred that, you know, any day over uh, – over getting a script passed to me. And it could have been a very good script, but I always preferred being able to just say what I felt and, and go with what the crowd, because if the crowd wasn't feeling something, I can switch it up on them, and I had that uh, freedom to do so. When you kind of given the script or, you know, before the Raw or something, you know, you kind of given a script and they're saying, oh, you know, we want you to hit these bullet points or, or we want you to memorize this whole thing. You need to say this and you need to take five minutes. Do you ever have any say in it or, or is it just basically you kind of have to just go with what's written for you? So most of the time, you know, and, and I was relatively new when I was on Raw, guys. I had only been in the business two years, so – I spent two years training underneath, you know, Rip Rogers, Al Snow, Danny Davis, and then I got the call, and next thing I know, I'm on, you know, I'm on live TV, I'm on the flagship show, so I was always taught, do what you're told, keep your mouth shut, and if you haven't been here six years, then you don't get to say anything, so my first year was kind of on eggshells, just doing what I was told, um, you know, there might have been once or twice where I didn't agree with the verbiage that was presented to me. And, um, you know, you've just got to be very diplomatic. And it's not about shooting down an idea. It's about how you shoot down the idea, but more importantly, what you present uh, as a solution. So uh, most of the time, I would say 95% of the time, in my first year as, as the manager of Umaga, I went with what they put in front of me. Now, later on, as ECW general manager, and I think I had started to build some trust within the creative team and the guys that had gotten to know me really well, like Dave Lagana, uh, Krista Joseph, those were two guys that just come, come to the top of my head because I had known them from when I was in OVW. I think they were big fans of the Armando character. Uh, there were times where they might ask for my input or – I felt comfortable enough to go up to them to say, hey, guys, what if I said this or what if we did that? Now with the, and then even more so as uh, uh, later on, actually, when I, when I went back to WWE in 2011, 2012, uh, the writers were a little bit more, at least for me, they were more welcoming, like, hey, you know, we know what you've done what are your thoughts on, on this? What would you say? How would you say it? Instead of just writing it for me, they would, they would sit down with me and get my input. I think because I had hmm. earned that trust. Hmm. That is good. I was curious of kind of how that goes in 
kind of when you get the input or and who gets the input. Now, with the Umaga intro, is that kind of all you is stemming from kind of what you created from the character, or are they put kind of their two cents in, you know, the rolling of the R's, the, you know, the way you're saying your name and, and everything? Are they contributing at all to that part of it? You know, uh, no, they, did, they didn't actually. The rolling of the R's, if you go back and watch some of my OVW footage before I was even signed, you know, with WWE, I had always rolled the R's. And I can't remember if I started doing that or if somebody gave me that idea, but it was definitely when I was in OVW. Um, as far as the introduction of Umaga, so initially he was just Umaga, and then I started to really harp on the Umaga. Uh, but I remember for the first two months thinking, you know, this guy needs a nickname. And I was trying to think of different, like, Nick, you know, like Shawn Michaels was the heartbreak kid or, you know, Diesel was Big Daddy Cool and Scott Hall was the bad guy and, you know, Randy Orton's the legend killer or the viper. And, you know, I felt this guy needed a nickname. I was just like, you know, he needs to have something else. And I had been, I was close to uh, Jimmy Superfly Snooker Jr., when we were both in developmental and, uh, you know, Jimmy was uh, half Samoan and he would always say to me, he would always say, Samoan, Samoan, Fa Samoa, right? So I just kind of remember <laughs> some of our conversations because we would, we would do the towns in OVW, drive all over Kentucky and, and Southern Indiana and just kind of, I'd hear his accent, right, when he was speaking in his native tongue or he would, you know, he would say Samoa, Samoa. So looking back at Umaga, I says, okay, he's got to be Samoan something. And, you know, there was that move that he used to do. I don't know if you guys remember. He'd put a guy in the turnbuckle. The guy would be, you know, kind of sitting on his butt facing, legs open, and Umaga would back up and just kind of run at him full speed with like a hip smash. Yes. And I was like, God, that thing was so impressive, you know, that it was almost like a wrecking ball. You know, a bulldozer swings the wrecking ball. So I, I always thought, man, if I, had, if I could just come up with something, and one day it hit me, you know, I was like, he's the bulldozer. He bulldozes his opponents, and I started with the Samoan bulldozer. And then the more I did it, the more natural it just felt, and I would just, you know, and the crowd would wait for me to do it, and it was – he was the Sa, you know, the Samoan bulldozer. Ooh, my God. And that became a thing where, I mean, it was deafening when I would, when I would introduce him because initially the audience was only, they were only doing my name. And I was like, well, my name is over. I need to get his name over. And dare I say, his name was as over as mine, if not more, uh, toward, towards our, uh, our peak. Definitely, and I feel like you guys were maybe getting too over because you guys were getting cheered a lot too. Did you get in trouble at all as far as, you know, them wanting you guys to get booed and, you know, you had to shorten your name? And did they kind of want you to not get uh, as over as you guys were getting? Oh, absolutely. And it was, you know, it was mainly me. So I guess I could hmm. take the blame for that. Um, and, and what they did is they took the microphone away from me. So I remember a quote, and it was after one of my 
promos on a pay-per-view. And we were in Toronto. It was Unforgiven. Uh, September 2006, I remember it was Umaga and Kane. It was their first televised match. And it was a big deal at that time because Umaga had primarily been working with a bunch of enhancement guys um, and no, nobody really near the, the top of the card. So Kane was kind of the guy that you had to work with before you got to John, right? So I recall that promo. And Toronto is a town much like Chicago, which is where I'm from, much like New York, much like Philly. They like the heels, right? And you can't tell them who to boo or who to cheer. There are certain guys they're just going to like and gravitate towards. So this was my first time in Toronto. We're on pay-per-view. They had given me a promo, I'd say, 10 minutes before we were supposed to go out there. But the worst part is they kept changing the promo on me, so the verbiage kept changing, and I was just like, I already had one version of the promo in my head. Anyway, long story short, I thought I cut the best promo, at least televised promo, of my career. And people will ask me, favorite match? And I'll say, well, I don't have a lot of favorite matches that I necessarily was in, but favorite promo I can tell you as far as televised, and that was unforgiven. So I went along, and I mean, the reaction was deafening. They were doing every, They did everything with me. They did the escuchame. They did everybody listen to me. They did my name, and they did his name, and they did, and it was just nonstop. And if you look in the crowd, they had signs. That, that had, like, the whole catchphrase spelled out. And it was amazing, the energy, right? So I go to the back thinking, you know, job well done. And I just remember getting chewed out and being told, and I quote, the same things that brought me to the main roster will get me sent back down to developmental. And I scratched my head for years trying to figure out how that's even possible, like to go out there and just do the best job that you can do. But ultimately, to your question, we were getting too over, and now the audience was starting to really like us instead of boo us, which the plan all along, which I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, was for us to be built up and then to be you know, to be fed, so to speak, to the superhero that is John Cena. So, yeah, they took the microphone away from me initially. And then my promos were, uh, at least on TV, I was not allowed to speak on TV for several months. Uh, And ultimately, January 1st of 2007, we were in Miami for a Raw. And I remember Vince McMahon, I was standing in the middle of the ring getting ready to do a rehearsal, and he flat out looked at me and said, you are no longer to introduce yourself. You're no longer Alejandro. You're no longer going to break the cigars. You're no longer going to make the crazy over-the-top facial expressions, and on and on and on. And it was just like, man, like um, everything that worked for me that got this character over, you're stripping away. So that was kind of like a, that was really a sad day for me thinking I was, you know, because we were in the main events, we were doing all the house shows with John, Uh, reactions were fantastic, the producers had nothing, you know, the agents, the road agents, the Arn Andersons and the the Dean Malenkos and the Fit Finleys, 
nothing but positive words, kind words, thank you for the house. And I'm like, Arn Anderson just told me, thank you for the house. Like, if you guys don't know what that means, that means there's half a million dollars that were made at the New Jersey Meadowlands that night. And John Cena was in the main event with us. Rather, we were in the main event with John Cena. And when Arn Anderson comes up to you and says that to you, and it's just like, why would Arn even say that to me if that wasn't true? And I look out in the crowd and I see people with Umaga and Armando signs. That means they bought a ticket to see us. But then it all came crashing down, you know, January 1st, uh, when they were like, this is not about you. You're not the window. You're the window dressing. So that was kind of, that was kind of uh, deflating, you know, to say the least. But, uh, you know, one thing I did learn is if you're meant to be in the mid card, then you have to stay there. And if you're meant to be in the main event, then they'll tell you when they want you to get to the main event. And when they give you the green light, then you've got to perform. But if you're supposed to be in the mid card and you're performing at a main event level, that can get you in trouble. So where does that kind of, like you said it was deflating, obviously, to you and, and Umaga, but where does that take you mentally at that point? Is that kind of just a complete downer? Does it make you kind of rethink things? Like, where's your head at at that point? Well, again, like, at that point, only being in the business, I guess at that point, about three years, um, yeah, for me, it was like, man, I'm just out here doing the best job I can. I remember Ricky Steamboat told me, he said, uh, he says, I don't care if the crowd is booing you or cheering you, at the end of the day, the thing that matters the most is those, and he points to the, because we were in, we were in some arena and he points and he points to the 300 level section. And he says, as long as I see people all the way as far back as the arena goes, then you're doing a great job. So, you know, you get sometimes different feedback from different people, but ultimately the buck stops with Vince. And if Vince says, God damn it, I don't care if they're, they're cheering you. If they're cheering you, you're supposed to be a heel, then you're not being a good heel. So we're going to take the microphone away from you, and we're going to strip you down, and you're going to be this very basic, you know, heel character. So, yeah, I mean, uh, we, and we were getting ready to go into the, uh, the Battle of the Billionaires uh, Right, right when that happened. So, you know, sure enough, I got stripped down and Vince McMahon kind of thrust himself uh, uh, alongside Umaga as his main manager, and I was just kind of there. So, yeah, that was, a, that was a little dejecting when I had felt I did the job that was asked of me and I had gotten Umaga up to that level that they needed him to be at, right? Because quite honestly, I don't think the crowd was coming with him until they were coming with me. And then when they cared about me, they started to pay attention to the word. And that's not a slight on his work. I just think that he wasn't uh, as regarded as I was in the very beginning by the audience. And then when the audience was paying attention every time I picked up the microphone, their attention span continued as the match began and they watched what he could do and at that point they were like oh this guy's entertaining and this guy's a killer i like this act 
It was a fantastic act. I love that act. And, you know, it's, it's like a perfect compliment. The manager is a compliment to the wrestler. The wrestler, obviously, you know, he gets over, and boom, obviously, you know, they kind of deflated you guys a bit. But how did you feel kind of taking the back seat with the whole battle of the billionaires and obviously with WrestleMania being huge and Donald Trump being involved and Vince's hair and obviously Donald Trump's hair on the line? How did you kind of feel about that? As far as taking a back seat or the match in general? Yeah, or? yeah taking a back seat there because it kind of feels like, you know, you should have been out there kind of uh, without all the other guys. You know what I mean? Like it was almost uh, – they had so many guys out there with Vince and Chain and everything. Well, and I think that was – you know, and, and, and I understand that because uh, the battle of the Armando versus Trump doesn't sell tickets, but the battle <laughs> of the billionaires with Vince and Trump, given their history – I understood why I had to take the back seat, but I wish I had been giving been given a little bit more um, of a role. Like if you go back and look at the posters, I was omitted from the WrestleMania 23 poster. I wasn't even on the DVD. I mean, I was hmm. on the DVD, but I wasn't on the cover with everybody else. Right? Um, I didn't do the press conference with Trump and everybody else, and. If you watch the match, I was eliminated. I was taken out of the match, I'd say, uh, within two minutes of the bell ringing. So I guess I would have liked to have been around a little bit more. It would have been nice to have taken a stunner from from Austin, which I think was initially written, uh, where Austin was going to take me out, you know, which would have been great to say, hey, the, the guy that stunned the president of the United States also stunned me on the same show. But uh, that was not to be, and I understood why they did it. They said there was just too many bodies at ringside. So, you know, that was fair. I was just looking at it, just, you know, to me as a fan, it's like, man, his, his manager should be out there more. Managers should be. But, I mean, it makes sense about the billionaires. I just felt like, you know, you got slighted a bit. But how was it working with Trump, albeit uh, very, you know, limited, but, was he uh, fun to work with when you, of what you saw of him out there? Well, the, the little interaction I did, and I'll have, I'll have a, uh, a Trump story for you here in a second, but, you know, he was always professional. Um, I think he did three Monday Night Raws, well, two, two, two Raws where he was actually live in the arena. And I think there was one where it was just, you know, via satellite, and then there was the actual mania itself. Um, always very professional, and I'll tell you a quick uh, Trump story. Uh, so long story short, there was physicality, obviously, between Vince and Donald. And Donald, at, at, you know, Donald uh, towards the end of the match, ran around the ring, tackled Vince, and proceeded to punch him in the top of the head. Well, Vince had asked me when, when the show had started, and we were already, we were probably an hour and a half, an hour and a half before we were set to walk down the ramp. Vince had asked me to go and meet Donald to make sure he was good with the physicality, right? Just to, to, just to make sure, because, you, you know, you've got a million buy rates, you've got 80,000 people in the stadium. So I go and I say, Donald, Vince wants to go over the physicality again. He just wants to make sure you're good. He says, yeah, I'm fine. He says, where, do you, where does Vince want me to punch him? And I says, well, I think he wants you to punch him either in the side of the neck or in the top of the head. And Trump says, 
okay, well, I think I'll punch him in the top of the head because I feel more comfortable there. I says, do you want to practice on me? He says, sure. I says, okay, so let's just pretend you're on top of me and let's go ahead. You've tackled Vince. Go ahead and punch me in the top of the head. So Donald Trump, the president of the United States, <laughs> proceeds to punch me in the top of the head as if he is hammering a nail in the wall. And if you go back and watch the tape, that's exactly how he punched Vince, okay? Only thing is, he hit me in the top of the head so hard that my head started to swell up a bit, like, the top, like above, my, um, above my eyebrow. He, had, he must have caught me with a knuckle. And afterwards, he says, are you okay? I says, yeah, I'm fine. I walk away, my head starts to swell up, and I says, holy shit, I forgot to tell him to pretend to punch me. So Donald Trump legit shoot punched me five times. My head swelled up. I took some Advil, so I was fine, kept the swelling down. I also wore that cool-ass, big-ass hat around my, <laughs> around my melon, so that kind of helped conceal the, uh, <laughs> the uh, abuse. So the president, the president of the United States, Assaulted me without provocation. <laughs> That's great. And can you believe that, uh, you know, WrestleMania 23, we go forward 10 years, it's WrestleMania 33, 10 years later, uh, Donald Trump is the president of the United States? I mean, never say never, right? I mean, the previous generation probably found it hard to believe that Ronald Reagan became president, right? He was a famous mm. actor, right? Yep. So, And I only know that because of the Back to the Future movie, right? When, when, no. Uh, <laughs> Michael Keaton, or, uh, Michael Keaton's character, not Michael Keaton, what the hell did I just Michael J. Fox. Michael, yep. Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox was sitting in the diner and asked uh, somebody who the president was and there's something like that. And they're like, Ronald Reagan, the actor? So, <laughs> hey, history has a way of repeating itself, I guess, right? <laughs> what do you think about Bobby Lashley in that match? Because, like, we talked about with Cena you know, he obviously needed that Royal Rumble match, but Bobby Lashley, they were just trying so hard to jumpstart this guy to the main event and to really be the next breakout main event guy. But I don't know if it was him not being that into it at that point or they just kind of weren't pushing him in the right direction. But what do you think about Bobby, as uh, Mr. Trump called him, Bobby Lindsay, uh, being put into that match uh, at WrestleMania? Well, Bobby was a hard worker, you know, legit athlete, um, looked like a million bucks, you know, had a legit background, you know, amateur wrestler. Uh, I don't know if he was an Army Ranger or if that was just kayfabe. But, um, you know, sometimes, and I think the, the audience is seeing, you know, the WWE is seeing it now. When you push somebody too fast, the audience might not take right away. Case in point. You know, Roman Reigns, I think, is a, an example of a guy that, although probably one of the hardest workers and a great guy and, and does everything he's supposed to do, the audience, for some reason, is just like, no, we're not buying you. And, in fact, we're going to boo you, right? And with Bobby, while I didn't hear boos, he didn't get the, the, the top babyface reaction that a, a guy in that position should have gotten. And maybe it was due to the lack of promo because, you know, Bobby, quite honestly, wasn't a very good talker. And, I, you know, I don't know because I don't really follow what he's doing today. But, you know, back then, you know, Bobby, wasn't, Bobby was not a promo guy. Uh, 
And I don't know if the fans really wanted to cheer him uh, over us. I, I think that, uh, you know, we had some, we had some great matches. Uh, Umaga and Bobby had great matches on the house shows. And we, we must have toured February through the summer, or May at least. So uh, there was a solid stretch of three months where these guys were just married, and they worked every night everywhere they were. And most nights, you know, Bobby got the babyface reaction, but there was a lot of nights where the the, the crowd wasn't uh, the crowd wasn't buying him. We'll jump ahead just a little bit here, just for the sake of uh, sake of some time. But you know, we had on a guy that you've been linked to again. You know, and not not that this is the most positive reason that you're linked to him, but we talked to Chris Harris uh, over the summer, and obviously. The Braden Walker debut was a huge, uh, huge topic of conversation, and you are now linked to Braden Walker's debut because as he, uh, quote, tried to beat your brains in. Uh, do you remember this whole scenario of Chris Harris coming in and kind of, you know, not necessarily getting off the ground the way he could have in the ECW brand where you were obviously a huge part of ECW, and I don't want to overlook that, but talk about, if you can, that Braden Walker uh, pairing that you had with him and how that's now gone on to have some kind of cult status because it was just so awkward uh, how Chris Harris kind of debuted there on ECW. Well, uh, I had only met Chris that day, so, uh, you know, never had any experience working with him otherwise. I will say that I think he was dealt a bad hand, and, and let me elaborate why I think that. So we were set to do... Uh, a promo backstage, what we call a pre-tape. Um, and I think I was, I was arguing with Teddy Long about being signed or, you know, trying to earn my contract. Something along the lines of the storyline was Armando had to win a match in order to get his contract. Cause Teddy Long had fired me as acting general manager and decided that keeping me on as a WWE superstar at the dollars that I was paying myself was just too much. So if I wanted to earn a new contract, I had to win a match. So week after week, he'd put me against somebody new. And they started bringing in some new talent, right, because that ECW show was relatively new, and they would bring in some guys from OVW, and then in the case of, like, Chris Harris, right, a guy that had made a name for himself outside of the WWE world. So – we had done this pre-tape over and over and over. The verbiage kept changing in the pre-tape. Not so much my verbiage, but Chris's verbiage. Also, a lot of people don't know this, besides the few guys that were in that room doing the pre-tape, is they kept changing his name. So I think the name they settled on was Braden Walker. Yeah, that sound right? Walker. Braden Walker, yeah. But he had had like two variations of that name in earlier pre-tapes. So here's a guy, brand new, uh, at least to WWE. They had changed his name at least twice, and they changed his promo at least twice. And we ended up, instead of doing a pre-tape, right, which is pre-recorded and then input into the show, we ended up doing a live take. So... You know, was it, the, was it the best promo? No, probably not. Was it the worst promo? Trust me, I've heard so many more worse than, than what he delivered. 
and, and in all transparency, I don't think I gave him the best match that I could have given a new, a, a debuting babyface who you only get one chance to make a first impression. And if the first impression is meh, then you're going to be thought of as meh, however you spe- spell meh, right? So I think I could have given him a better match, and I didn't. That's that's a very interesting take. Yeah, he's he's a very interesting uh, case to talk about because, I, I, as we talked about with him, he was a reverse jump, and he was one of the few that jumped from TNA to WWE. So he had a little bit of cachet right. coming his way, but I know he had been injured, and he kind of just, you know, he wasn't really feeling it right away. Like you said, they changed the name on him a couple of times, but – to see what has gone on with the promo and kind of taking his character and just being a parody of what it was, you know, these internet videos. Have you ever seen the uh, the internet, you know, the, uh, the, in the really the early stages of YouTube? This is one of the most popular things is these Braden Walker videos. Have you ever uh, had the chance to view any of those? You know, I have. I've had people send them to me, and, you know, and, and, they're, and they're, they're funny. I just don't, looking back, I just don't think the guy got a fair shake. I really don't. I, I, um, I will say uh, he had been signed for quite some time, and he had been sitting at home, to my knowledge, uh, as evidenced by, you know, he had put on some weight and he wasn't performing. He was probably working with an extra 15, you know, pounds that he didn't have when he was in his uh, TNA heyday. So, you know, could he, have, could he have shown up in better shape? Sure. Could he have had maybe a little bit more enthusiasm or charisma? Sure. Could they have given him some better material to work with? Sure, right? I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. We can go back and pick it apart and say, well, you could have did this and you could have did that. But I was there, and I think that he didn't get a fair shake overall. I think he was gone within you know, six weeks or whatever. Yeah, we like to call it the ballad of uh, Braden Walker because it was uh, it was kind of you're here, you're gone. But you know he's very uh, he's very passionate retelling the whole story, and it's uh, yeah he didn't get a fair shake, that's for damn sure. But just kind of summing up ECW, you know you got the chance to really go out on your own and be the general manager of ECW, and yet you got to wrestle in, in ECW, and you had a lot of different feuds with guys like Colin Delaney and Tommy Dreamer, and like we mentioned with Braden Walker, you know, that the infamous pre-tape and the match. But how did you feel about going over to ECW? It was kind of in flux because it was past, you know, the rebranding with the new characters, you know, like our good friend Kevin Thorne and the supernatural people, uh, and was kind of now taking a different spin but how did you feel about being included in that ECW brand and getting your own chance now to be uh, your own guy? I was thrilled. I mean, it was, uh, it was a live show. Um, ECW was touring with SmackDown, and I had a lot of my OVW brothers that were on the SmackDown brand. Um, so I was ecstatic when I got the call um, that I would be getting, you know, the, the GM nod and, I remember, I think it was like August 11th or August 12th, I was in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, so actually, a lot of people don't know, is I was taken, I was on the road with WWE for an additional three months after they had pulled me off away from Umaga. I was still on the road traveling to all the, uh, the uh, Raws, Smackdowns, and pay-per-views, but I was not being used. And after like three months, 
they were like, hey, you know what? We don't have anything at the moment, so just sit tight at home. And I remember a, a, a conversation with Howard Finkel. He called me to tell me that they didn't have travel for me one week. And I says, well, Howard, that's a shame. But the next time you book travel for me, I'll be in Louisville, Kentucky. I don't have an address just yet, but I'm going to be at OVW. So I packed up my things. I called up a buddy of mine, uh, Cliff Compton, better known as Domino, from the Deuce and Domino tag team that was on SmackDown 2007-2008. And I says, hey, I need a place to crash because I'm not on the road and I can't go home and do nothing. So I needed to be around the ring. So I actually moved back to Louisville for two months, and I lived on Cliff Compton's couch. And I went to all the OVW classes, and I trained, and I went, uh, did all the house shows, and did that for about two months, maybe nine weeks. And then I got a call saying, all right, we've got something for you. You're going to be the ECW general manager. So It's a... Uh... That's a hell of a transition, you know, to be the ECW general manager. But you mentioned all the OVW brothers, and obviously getting down there and hanging out with Domino, I'm sure that was, uh, that was definitely an experience too. But what do you think about that whole OVW group? Though? All you guys that were down there in OVW, you know, it was such a, a different way, I think, of learning the business because you had some really tried and true veterans, uh, guys who really just were in the trenches and taught it to you guys in a very different style than what they get now. And now there's a whole performance center for developmental. And obviously, OVW versus NXT, did you ever think that the WWE developmental would kind of uh, progress forward into what it is now? Because, my goodness, the, uh, I think that the, <laughs> the differences are quite vast when you compare the two entities. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, uh, I remember I started in the OVW school if you want to call it that, in, in Jeffersonville, Indiana. So before the one that stands today in Louisville, Kentucky, I was training very briefly in Jeffersonville, Indiana. And you talk about whew, quite the opposite of the performance center. So when we moved from Jeffersonville to the what's now called, I think it's still called the, Davis, the Danny Davis Arena in Louisville, Kentucky, I mean, that was like the Taj Mahal. I remember somebody was like, this is the Taj Mahal, or this is the Harvard of professional wrestling schools, right? There was no better school. There was no better place to learn, not just from the instructors, but from the building, the ring, the, you know, there was a lot, there were locker rooms, right? There was a place where you could watch film. There was a weight room. Um, and then I remember when WWE pulled the developmental from Louisville to Tampa, uh, which was, you know, Florida Championship Wrestling. I was there for Florida. I would, you know, anytime I wasn't on the road, uh, you know, doing house shows or TV, I would always ask to be flown to school. So it's like, if I'm not on the road, just fly me back to school. So whether it was spending extra time in, in Louisville or going down to Tampa at FCW, when I walked into Tampa, I was just like, look at all these rings. They've got, I think they had three practice rings and they had a main ring, right? And they had all the other things I mentioned, like a tape room and a workout area and these nice, fancy locker rooms. Oh, and they had air conditioning, you know, which a lot of the guys that maybe came in around my time and before me didn't have that, right? So 
you talk about luxury. And then to take it a step further, to go from FCW to NXT, and I haven't been to NXT. I've only, I've only seen the pictures and, the, you know, um, the network specials. And so I can only imagine what that's like now. But, no, I, I didn't think it would go there. But it's just a sign of what the industry has become and what WWE has become. And I'm, I'm glad to see that they're investing in their performers and they're giving them state-of-the-art facilities both in the form, you know, in, with the rings and the trainers and the, the you know, the, the, the staff. You know, if somebody goes down with an injury, they've got state-of-the-art doctors uh, right there on site. So to me, that says a lot about what WWE, as far as investing in the future and in their, in their performers. I love it. Do you think, though, with that NXT that, you know, in the Performance Center, that they're really, you know, they're manufacturing the prototypical WWE superstar? Not to say that people who were sent to OVW were not made to be the prototypical WWE superstar. We know that there's been people that have been signed that were fresh out of, you know, wherever, and they became uh, WWE products and learned the WWE system. But do you think that now they have a better chance to really manage somebody's career uh, from jump, uh, mold them into, you know, possible carbon copies of uh, either past performers, uh, you know, (laughs) fellow performers, and really be able to manage what it is they consider to be a top-flight superstar going forward? I think so. Short answer, I think they can. Uh, And ultimately, it falls on the talent to be able to break out of the mold, though, and break out of the path and set your set yourself apart. So, you know, it's, it, could be very, it could be a very dangerous thing where you've got all these guys that are learning the same way, right? And they're in one territory, and I'll use that term loosely because, you know, they're in Orlando and they probably tour a very uh, small uh, geographic region, but the difference is they've got so many different trainers and guys that have worked all over the world in different eras and different territories that can kind of – so it, it, it wouldn't be cookie-cutter. It would be cookie-cutter if you had one or two guys that were kind of teaching everybody the same way. But to my knowledge, there's at least half a dozen, if not ten uh, trainers that are down there, you know, like Shawn Michaels, and I don't know if Norman Smiley's still down there, Billy Kidman, I don't think Bill DeMott's there anymore, but just so many guys. I think uh, Adam Pierce, and they've got, uh, I forget her name, working with the women. So many different styles of people that can, that can you, know, mold, you know, mold the talent in different ways, and I think that's the key. You don't wrestling. You need people to look different, to sound different, to act different, to to move around different. Otherwise, then it's just all vanilla ice cream. And you know, one thing I learned about wrestling is wrestling is like Baskin Robbins. You know, you've got a flavor for everybody. Not everybody likes vanilla. Not everybody likes chocolate. Some people like chocolate chip cookie dough. I personally like you know mint chocolate chips. My favorite. It's my daughter's favorite too. And because she's quiet now, I might actually give her a scoop. But that's the thing about wrestling is there is no right or wrong. There, you know, there's a lot of shades of gray, and there's a flavor for everybody. It's the ultimate variety act, and that's what you want. You want variety of talent. 
in the business. You want a guy that looks like Samoa Joe. You want a guy that looks like Randy Orton. You want a guy that looks like Kalisto. You want a guy that looks like Shasta or a girl that looks like Sasha Banks, et cetera, et cetera. Different, different, different. So well said. I love the way you stated that there with the Baskin Robbins. But as we start to wind it down here, you mentioned before Cena versus Amago is your favorite match to be a part of as far as ringside. But do you have a favorite match as far as wrestling and when you're in there as a wrestler? I've got a few that stand out. Uh, I actually have a few favorite opponents, guys, that I, you know, I, I worked quite a bit with both in OVW and in WWE slash ECW slash uh, independence. Um, I think one match that jumps out is uh, – an Umaga, uh, it was an Umaga tribute match with myself and uh, Mr. Ken Kennedy, Ken Anderson. Uh, it was actually the day after uh, Umaga had passed away. And we, th- this was a, an independent show in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin for uh, Great Lakes Championship Wrestling. Close to 2,000 people there. For, for that uh, indie show. It's a pretty big indie show every year, uh, blizzardbrawl.com. Um, and that, that match stands out because it was very emotional. Obviously, my connection to Umaga, but also a lot of people may not know this, Ken, uh, Umaga's last match was against Ken Anderson about a week earlier, or 10 days earlier, on the uh, Hulkamania Tour of Australia. So... Uh, and that was the funny part is, or I don't know if it's funny or not, but Ken and I were scheduled to work all along. So it wasn't like the news of Umaga broke and then the promoter said, all right, you're going to work with Ken. It wasn't like that at all. We were advertised to work together. Um, and then we got the news and that one stands out. I had a lot of great matches too in uh, OVW with guys like Jimmy Snuka Jr. and, uh, Elijah Burke, uh, I think he's working as the Pope, the Pope on TNA, maybe? Yep. Yeah, so those guys kind of, uh, you know, we didn't have to say anything. We could just kind of, we had trained with each other enough in OVW to where we could kind of go out there. We knew what each other was capable of doing. We just talked about it in the ring. So that was always, uh, those those matches always, uh you know, I have very fond memories of them. Now, there was a rumor about, I guess, you know, 12 years ago or so, right before Umaga debuted, and it was basically that, that spot. It was supposed to be Samoa Joe as the Samoan, you know, as the Umaga character, blah, blah, blah. Not sure if that's actually true or not or if that's just a rumor, but would he be a guy, you know, currently that you would manage, almost like a perfect fit for you? Would it Samoa Joe kind of be a guy you would like to manage or, you know, think about managing? So the first part of, I don't know if that was a question or, or a statement, but that, that's actually the first I'm hearing of, of Samoa Joe supposedly being in that spot that was occupied by Eddie Fatu. Um, and I don't know if there's, I don't really know if there's anybody in the business that could get me off, you know, out of retirement. It's not a knock on any of the talent. There's a lot of great talent in the business. Um, I always felt that I was diverse enough and versatile enough 
to be able to manage anybody. What I mean by that is, you know, if you look back at, and I'm not certainly not going to compare myself to uh, Bobby Heenan, who I think is the greatest of all time, but Bobby managed guys like Haku, Ravishing Rick Rude, Nick Bockwinkle, Andre the Giant. So he managed guys that were well-spoken, like Bockwinkle and like Rick Rude. He managed the Giants like Andre and Bundy and, and Big John Stud. He managed the Savages like a, I guess, like a Haku. I don't know if he would cons- be considered a Savage, but maybe on looks alone. Um, I always wanted to be a guy that could just be plugged in with any type of talent, whether it was an Umaga, whether it was a guy like a, 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 a Ryback or a Dolph Ziggler or a Wade Barrett or a Jack Swagger. To me, it didn't matter. You know, Tyson Kidd, who I managed for one night, um, to me, it didn't matter. If the, if the guy's talented, if you give me a microphone and I, I get to know this talent and learn a little bit about him, we can put stuff together. We can make magic. Absolutely. And then the, the Samoa Joe thing, I kind of pushed through it a little bit there. I wasn't sure if that was actually true or not. You know, the, these crazy internet rumors, but it's great that you kind of uh, debunked that. That is uh, good to know that that actually is not actually ever true. Yeah. And I mean, again, that's to my knowledge. If you know, you might want to ask Samoa Joe that if you, if you uh, <laughs> ever have him on your show, but to my knowledge, uh, I wasn't aware of that. Now you said, you know, you're in retirement. Anything that would bring you out of the business? Anything that would make you, you know, jump off that chair and come back? Oh, loaded question. <laughs> uh, boy, you know, when I was in the business and, and, you know, we didn't even talk about my fandom and how I was just the ultimate fan that, you know, uh, ever since I was five or six years old, probably just a little bit older than my daughter is right now, growing up in Chicago and just watching anything that was wrestling. It didn't matter if it was the AWA, which is what I grew up on. I, I watched world-class championship wrestling on syndication. They were showing stuff that was probably two years old. Okay. So I remember being like, it was like 86 and they were showing stuff from like the parade of champions, 84, right? <laughs> like two years old. And they're, they're giving that to Chicago syndication. Um, obviously WWF and, and the NWA and I grew, I love Ric Flair and going to all the shows and just being, you know, you know, kind of like what Bailey is today, right? The Bailey character. That was me. That, I was, I was Bailey, right? And, and a lot of the guys I know that love the business, uh, got into the business, right? As performers. So, uh, and I lost my train of thought of where I was going with this, but, uh, when I, was, when I was in the industry and I was on the road all the time, I was a single guy, right? And when you're a single guy, you're only worried about number one. And as you, you know, later in life, and by no means am I old, because I'm not even into my 40s yet, all right? And I still look pretty damn good. Um, but I've got a wife. I've got a young child. I like sleeping in my own bed, uh, every night, you know, I travel for my, my job now and I'm gone maybe a few days a month, right? Sometimes a little bit more, 
sometimes a little bit less. Um, and I'm very happy with where I'm at in life right now. So I still watch the product when I can from time to time. And um, I'm enjoying life outside of the business, you know. Um, every now and then, I'll get a phone call from a promoter that says, Amigo, we'd like you to come sign some autographs like I'll be doing April 1st at WrestleCon. Is this time for the plug or not yet? We're getting there, but continue, please. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when I get a phone call from, from my friends at uh, LV, LVP Videos, lvpvideos.com, to say, hey, we want to bring you to Orlando, and you're going to do a signing at WrestleCon for a few hours. And I'll say, you know what? It's Orlando. It's sunny. It gets me out of Chicago. <laughs> um, and I'll go down there, and I'll hang out with some friends, and I'll spend WrestleMania weekend catching up with some old buddies of mine. And, and I'll do that with rarity. So it's not something that I, that I do uh, frequently. I don't actively pursue bookings. Um, I am, for the most part, retired and enjoying it. But, you know, wrestling, as I found out, is a lot like the mob, although I've never been in the mob. Uh, you know, once you think you're out, years go by and you get a phone call and they pull you back in. So never say never, but... Uh, Armando Estrada is enjoying life post wrestling. And that's uh, you basically took the words out of my mouth. In the next question, we usually end with "What's your legacy?" But that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty darn good to wrap up. You know, being a super fan and taking that and doing what you did in the wrestling business, which has been as well documented as it could be in this interview tonight. And we obviously are so thrilled that you just were able to give us so much, but. If I could just kind of throw it to you this way, and I'll just uh, we'll get a little introspective here if we can for the final uh, question before the big plug But if you look at what you and Umaga could have done, and I know it's hard to look at the what-ifs, but obviously nostalgia being what it is, you two probably had one more good nostalgic run left than you. What do you think you and Umaga could have done if you had one more chance to get together and go through that curtain and possibly even on the stage like a WrestleMania. What is the ideal situation you could have had for you and Umaga for your final match together? Well, I will say this. If they didn't break us up when they did, and they had allowed us to continue to play together. And when I say play together, I'm using an analogy like band members, you know, a guy that plays, and I'm not for, I've never played in a band, but, a guy on guitar and the drummer and the lead singer, you know, when you let them get some, they get some sets together, right, or a baseball player that keeps getting at bats, right, and you just get comfortable doing your thing, he and I were so comfortable with each other right around the fourth month that it was so easy, he and I. There were, I knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew exactly where I was going to be. And I think that if they had allowed us to stay together for two, three, four, five years, that we could have rivaled the legacy, the legacy of the pairing of an undertaker pallbearer. If they had given us the years to stay together and booked us the way they were booking us, 
I think we could have gone down as one of the greatest wrestler manager combinations in the history of the business. Couldn't uh, agree with you more as uh, a great way to end it, but please, you know, we appreciate you sharing all this, but share with the listeners of the two man power wrestling, just where they can find anything and everything for Armando Estrada, obviously the WrestleCon appearance April 1st, but as well, where could we send these fine listeners to find everything going on in the social media world of Armando Estrada? So I am on Twitter at real Armando haha. That's real Armando H A H A. I'm also on Facebook. I am not on Instagram or Snapchat because I think people take too many damn pictures of themselves, and this is the most photographed generation ever. So uh, I tweet 140 characters or less, verbally eradicating stupidity from Earth, one idiot at a time. Ha <laughs> ha. Well, thank you so much, Armando. This has been a ton of fun, and uh, we really uh, we appreciate everything. And Again, just so uh, so deep and uh, really just informative, and uh, appreciate it very much. Well, amigos, you, you can't you can't shoo me off the show without properly giving me a, a, a proper send off. So how about I give myself a send off since you guys wouldn't do it for me? The floor is yours, amigos. You've been listening to the two man power trip with your very special guest, the one, the only. My name is Armando Alejandro Estrada. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.